And at this time, we, as you know, our uh, interim pastor is traveling. I believe he'll be back next week. We have invited uh, Eduardo Lemos to uh, fill the pulpit this morning. He is by trade a uh, engineer. He spent many years working in many countries as a management consultant. And he was called for the pastorship seven years ago and he studied at London Seminary. In 2020, he moved back to Brazil where he was raised and he is presently serving as a second or auxiliary pastor at Central Baptist Church in Guadalajara. And I'd like to invite Eduardo up here this morning. Good morning, Calvary. It's, uh, I'm so happy and honored to be here with you today. Um, my wife would have been as well. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't bring the best part of me for the last 33 and a half years. Um, a trip already arranged well before the invitation to come here to preach this morning. We have been uh, ourselves expats for many years, as I imagine many among yourselves, and um, we have been worshiping with you. You don't know that, but through the internet, and once here in persona. So we learn to love this church, and uh, I tell you, it's much better to see you, your beautiful faces from here than from the back there in the front row. I love God, I love serving Him, and I love His Word. For us pastors, teachers, the Bible points us two key priorities, the ministries of prayer and the ministry of the Word. As uh, we read in Acts 6, 4. Pastors are to expound the word of God because it is through it that we are saved. And because through it, the saved are sanctified in his truth. As Jesus said in his prayer to the Father in our behalf in John 17, verse 17. So the challenge of the preaching elder is not to filter, dilute, and sugar the Word of God, to go with the flow of uh, the shallow, people-pleasing culture of these days, but to preach it expositionally or expositorily in order to tap into the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, to use the words of Romans 11.33. Expository preaching means focusing only on the Bible text within its context, using scripture to explain scripture, because it is only scripture that transforms our hearts. 
if you are either seeking God or if you already love him, you go to God's word, the first and foremost thing, before any other input for your life. The Bible says that the way we see whether we are saved is, or whether we are true believers and hence disciples of Christ, is by checking if we are indeed living by the word of God, as Jesus said in John 8, verse 31. So it is the word of God that works in us through the Holy Spirit to transform our lives forever. And there is nothing that could possibly come from preachers themselves, as smart as our rhetorics could be. And to make this point, 200 Bible faithful church leaders met in 1978 and then sat again in 1982 to produce what became known as the Chicago Statement on Hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the way you interpret and present the Bible to others. The last phrase in its 25th article sums it all. We deny that the preacher has any message from God apart from the text of Scripture. Close quote. I carry this priority of preaching the word and prayer passionately in my heart of servant in mature age, who has been convicted of his own superficiality as a nominal Christian for many years, and who is increasingly appalled by the feel-good numbness deceiving our churches today. Which brings me to explain the choice of the passage regarding today's sermon. I thought I'd uh, give you an example for you this morning regarding this business of expository preaching. So, as I proposed 40 days ago when I was kindly invited to preach this morning, I will not pull out my gun with my silver bullet sermon. I will exposit together with you a passage as any other that you are currently reading together so that you would hopefully see how systematic expository preaching of any text in scripture, like the one you happen to be reading, is so enriching. So by way of introduction, your guest speaker here invites you to join what he understands, I, is the number one challenge and priorities for us as a church, which is to focus on the word and in prayer, both of which defines who we are and what we do. So brethren, let us dive deeper in our scripture reading, be it individually, in our own quiet time, be it collectively, through more prayer meetings, and of course, expository preaching, which helps us fully exploit the treasures of God in every single corner and passage of scripture. 
all of which is God's word, all of which draws us closer to him through the Holy Spirit's illuminating guidance. So let's ask that for God before we start. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your works in creation and salvation. Thank you for your word, which explains these works and presents you to us. Would you please speak to our hearts through the richness of your word, enlightened by your Holy Spirit, and embrace us this morning with the transforming power of your word, helping us to be more and more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So our passage, Luke 1, 57, 66, which was read earlier, we will be projecting sequentially the verses again um, from my ESV translation as we go along expounding it. So in a nutshell, what we read, this passage, is describing the birth, circumcision, and naming of John the Baptist and the joy that attended that occasion. This account follows Angel Gabriel's announcement earlier in the chapter. It reminds us the birth accounts of Old Testament key figures like Abraham, Isaac, like Samson, so Abraham's Isaac, Isaac, Samson and Samuel, all of them birth from barren women. All of them preceded by angelic announcements. So all of these birth stories, including the story of Jesus' birth, here intertwined with John the Baptist's story in, in, in the beginning of, of Luke, all of these stories follow a similar pattern of interactions. This is so typical of the word of God that earmarks God's salvation, his plan throughout biblical history. So by using recurring motifs, special words and sentences structure, God is reminding us of his divine authorship. So let me walk you through our passage today. Now the time came from, for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Zechariah and Elizabeth neatly remind us, Abraham and Sarah, don't they? Both the same old age condition and barrenness. In both cases, the announcement from the Lord and his angel came to the father, Abraham and Zechariah, respectively. And the prophetic announcement was fulfilled. John the Baptist was born. We're talking about the birth of a man who would be great before the Lord. These were the exact words that the angel said in verse 15. We're talking about the birth of the greatest men of men born of woman. And these are the exact words that Jesus would say later in Luke chapter 7, verse 28. So 
So John the Baptist is a unique figure in biblical history. As the chosen one of God to be the latest version of an Old Testament prophet. In fact, the very last one. With the greatest of honors to be the immediate forerunner and contemporary herald of the most important event after creation of mankind, which would inaugurate a new era. So John, as the greatest man born of woman, he was given the name Johannes in Greek, which comes from the Hebrew Johannan, which in turn is the abbreviation of Yehohanan, which means God is gracious, or graced by God, or grace of God. That depends on, on how it is used in the Hebrew phrase. The highest expression of God's grace to man was the incarnated God himself, who would be personally introduced to the world by John the Baptist. God would use John the Baptist to convert many of the children of Israel, as the Lord said through his angel earlier in the chapter in verse 16. And to render the importance of John the Baptist's role, the angel compared the spirit and power of the Lord in John the Baptist with that of Isaiah, which was the most important prophet for the Israelites. And speaking of spirit of the Lord and John the Baptist, John the Baptist is the greatest of all men born of woman because yet 34 years ahead of Pentecost, he would already have the Holy Spirit indwelt in him right after his conception. We are told this in verse 15. So when we read here, now the time came for his birth. We know that this birth is that of the greatest man born of women, which anticipates the birth of the greatest of men born of God. The Messiah to whom Old Testament scripture was pointing to all along throughout the unfolding testimonies of God through the patriarchs or through the priests and prophets using types and motifs and language association, as we said earlier, clearly showing the crescendo of God's story, of his salvation story. The history of mankind, of, or, sorry, the biblical history, the history of God, his story. So scripture is presenting to us another miracle, confirming centuries, what was speaking of centuries before, 700 years before in Isaiah 40, verse 3, and then some centuries after in Malachi 3, 1. So the first key point that this passage is telling us is that we can trust God's word. God's word can be trusted because it is inerrant and infallible. What it says always is fulfilled in God's good time. 
We cannot but stand in awe of this word and of the God of this word and realize that this prophecy, just one among 1,400 plus prophecies documented in scripture, all of which happened in their due time. And therefore, there is no reason why we shouldn't believe that the remaining 400 plus prophecies yet to be fulfilled in the future wouldn't be so. So if the Bible says that believers will resurrect like Christ, as Christ did, and that believers will live an internal life of bliss with him, while unbelievers will suffer eternal condemnation, Every single one of us should believe and, and humble ourselves to the Lord, embracing his, his saving grace and his lordship in our lives. Then in verse 58 we read, And our neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord has shown great mercy to her, and that they rejoiced with her. The Bible translation here adheres to the original Greek, starts with a temporal conjunction, which is the word and. This means that the neighbors and relatives came to know what was happening to Elizabeth only after the birth of the child. So this means that Elizabeth, Elizabeth's pregnancy was kept secret in order to avoid, by all means, the group pressure and speculation that would certainly stress out that old woman living under that extraordinary circumstance, both of her pregnancy and of the muteness of her husband. The secret had been well kept by Zechariah, by Elizabeth, and, of course, by Mary, her teenage cousin, herself in similar condition, pregnant of Jesus. But now we have a radiant Elizabeth, nursing little John, her newborn, under the eyes of all. And the people, the verse says, rejoiced with her. Again, fulfilling the exact prophetic words that Gabriel said earlier in the chapter. This joyful recognition points to the Lord's favor and mercy. And this is our second key point from the passage, that when we perceive the Lord's mercy, we cannot but manifest joy. The Lord is merciful. He brings us joy. Coming back to what we were saying regarding recurring biblical motifs and earmarking, biblical earmarking, as we look back again to Abraham, as Abraham saw Sarah having Isaac, she was laughing. And she named her son Isaac, which means laughter, the one who laughs or rejoices. Sarah said in her own words, Genesis 21, 6, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me, she said. God's favor and mercy was joyful because it removed from Elizabeth, as it did with Sarah, that stigma of barrenness, which was a heavy burden, mind you, for the wife of a Jerusalem priest. God's favor 
and mercy was shown in bringing her safely through her pregnancy, which she concealed psychologically, in that psychologically demanding time, as we said, also with her husband, Mutinous, from both of which they emerged in good testimony. And yet, more impressively, the story of this earthly joy of John the Baptist's miraculous birth is just an appetizer for Christ's miraculous birth, the news of which would bring celestial joy for all people, as we read in Luke chapter 2, verse 10, which is the same joy for the miraculous new birth that every single believer should have. Every single believer who believed in the gospel, in this story unfolding through the ages, through the birth of John the Baptist then, which followed Christ's birth and ministry on earth, and which reconciled us to God. The old standing apostle, John, not the Baptist, the evangelist now, lived long enough to remind us in one of Scripture's last writing, in 1 John 1.4, that the reason he wrote Scripture was to make our joy complete, is written there. To follow God and his word gives you complete joy. Jesus himself said that in John 15.11. These things I have spoken to you, he said, hence, word of God, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Our joy is full in Jesus Christ, and in no one else, and in nothing else. As we embrace God and his word in full belief, repenting from our sins, especially those embedded in our attitudes, that proceed from lack of faith. Not talking of the big sins, but the small, pervasive, continuing ones. All of which God sees, even when we try to enter the Holy of Holies, as did Zechariah. And with that word of faith, we come to know God and fullness of joy as we spiritually dress ourselves with the righteousness of Christ acquired for us in that cross. Joy, which attests our own miraculous birth and eternal life with God. Now on to verse 59. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah, after his father. We have the circumcision happening eight days after the birth, which introduces John the Baptist to the, into the Old Testament covenant. A practice, in fact, initiated with Abraham well before the law. And uh, which brings, of course, John the Baptist under the law of the writings and the prophets. It had to be so because he himself was the Old Testament prophet, the last one, which would announce the Christ, the fulfiller of the covenant, through whom God's promise would be accomplished to bless all nations, as was the original promise to Abraham. 
and then confirm to David whose descendant God would establish the throne forever. So circumcision symbolized God's faithful alliance with his people. In this case, in the Old Testament. And after Jesus' ministry, you know this, baptism became the symbol of God's faithful alliance now with his chosen people of New Testament. Thus, baptism celebrates the new miraculous birth of a believer who comes to faith, him too, through a miraculous birth, and enter into God's covenant, the New Testament covenant, as John entered the Old Testament covenant. We are justified by the blood of Christ. And having submitted his life to Jesus' saving grace, the believer then submit to his lordship. A life, therefore, lived in God's will, according to his word and his spirit, full of joy. This is the message of the gospel, of our miraculous birth and eternal life. With God, our creator and our redeemer. Do you believe this message? Am I hearing amens? There's nothing more important than this, right? There shouldn't be. So people of God manifest their miraculous birth in faith, being always grateful and joyful to the Lord. And then we come to the naming of John the Baptist in verses 60 through 63. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he said, for a writing tablet, he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, John is his name. And they all wondered. Naming was a big thing in a culture in which meaning of word were taken seriously. And... Uh, in terms also of, of who people were and what they did. It was not uncommon for family to participate and, 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 and family community in the naming process. We see that, for example, the naming of Ruth and Boaz's son in uh, Ruth chapter 4, verse 17. And naming the son after the father was the default tradition. It was a family thing, to mark the family the family tradition. But in Luke verse 13, we see that God had already instructed regarding the name of the child, showing that his purpose and his ways are above the tradition and culture of men. The Greek expression of Elizabeth's rebuttal is very strong. She was prompt and incisive. No, she said, he shall be called John. Zechariah, too, in what was the last time he would ever need to use a tablet, a wax tablet, to speak, he wrote in it just four words, pressing the emphasis on the first word, as is evident in the original New Testament Greek, which 
literally shouts out, John is his name. So here we see both Zechariah and his wife stepping up against tradition of men and standing up for God. They were saying there will be no interference or change in what God said. No change in his word. So I bring to your attention the third key point now, specifically for believers, those who said amen earlier. Stand up for God and his word. At this point in Zacharias and Elizabeth's story, we see their unswerving faith and obedience to God in relation to the beginning where, the beginning of the story where Zechariah doubted God and uh, was muted by the angel. And by the way, not only was he muted, but he was made deaf. You can notice this in verse 62, as his friends and family had to make signs to speak to him. So for nine months, Zechariah could not could neither speak or hear. Bible commentator Matthew Henry beautifully quips, better be without speech than not use it in praising God. This is exactly what we will see in the next verse. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. As Zachariah started to speak again. J.C. Ryle, the Anglican uh, bishop of Liverpool, said two centuries ago, and I'll quote Thabiti Anyabwile, quoting Ryle, let us take heed that affliction does us good as it did to Zechariah. Sanctified afflictions are spiritual promotions. In other words, the suffering that humbles us and draws us nearer to God is a blessing for our spiritual maturity. And this is our fourth key point, using J.C. Ryle's words. Sanctified afflictions are spiritual promotions. If you are a child of God, trying to understand your way in life, counter-struggling to reconcile with God's word and his wisdom, think about how much hardship and suffering God could use to equip your faith and open your senses. In Zechariah's case, God, again in his grace and mercy, lifted his punishment, opening his mouth and ears. Zechariah is now a believer who fully hears and speaks for the Lord. His, his neighbors were already astounded with, with the to see the barren old friend of theirs having a child, miraculously giving birth. And now they see her husband, the old priest, miraculously regaining speech and remarkably outpouring praises to God, which acquires the, the form of a wonderful song in verses 67 to 79, which I believe you will read next week. Zechariah went on singing a song of confident hope in God's grace and faithfulness according to God's saving purpose. 
His mouth and ears were opened for the glory of God. Because of the eyes of his spiritual conscience, the eyes of his heart were now opened. Zechariah had been a priest. He was a priest. But now he is a genuine believer. Praising the wonderful workings of God and making God's glory known. So this prompts us a, a quick note. Just between you and me. Not to let ourselves be fooled. Because not every church leader, worker, or member is a believer. But like Zechariah, they too can become a genuine believer. So back to Zechariah, after four centuries of silence, God's salvation plan for man was beginning to unfold again in front of his very eyes and family. Zechariah praises the Lord, truthful to the meaning of his own name. Because the name of Zechariah means he, God, remembers his holy covenant. Zechariah praises the Lord next to his wife Elizabeth, and her name means the oath of God. And Zechariah praises the Lord with her wife Elizabeth, both holding their newborn, John, which means grace of God. So putting it all together and applying to ourselves, praise God as he remembers his holy covenant, the meaning of Zechariah, fulfilling the oath of God, meaning of Elizabeth, to put on display the grace of God, meaning of John. Or in our language today in the New Testament times, Praise God because he is faithful to his covenant in Christ, fulfilling his promises to show his grace. And then we will read in the following verse that the joy that struck Zechariah and Elizabeth and their community echoed across the entire hillside of Judea. And fear came on all the neighbors, their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. The faithfulness and grace of God, which was witnessed and praised by that small family community, ensued reverence to God and a contagious joy that would spread throughout the region. The bells of spiritual revival were ringing in that whole area. So this begs us a question as we look into ourselves. Do we all praise and witness God for his grace and faithfulness with such reverence and contagious joy as a result of our own miraculous birth and that of the newborns in church, in our family in church? And finally, until the last verse of our passage today, which concludes saying, And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? That question, as Matthew Henry again puts brilliantly, 
that question mulled over and considered further in the years to come, would open many to grace because John would become the greatest witness the world had ever known, close quote. So in a sense, the question is answered in the verse itself, which concludes saying, for the hand of the Lord was with him. Because in hindsight, we know the Lord's hand was indeed with John the Baptist for the purpose of introducing the Messiah and with him the last phase of God's redemptive history for all mankind. And we also know that the Lord's hand is with each of his born-again children. You and I, if you know God. We who love God and see all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And I just read Romans 8, 28. So on closing, this passage will send us home with, uh, with the following questions. Let's take two minutes we have left to start pondering them now and continue to mold it at our homes and for the rest of our lives. Are you willing to indeed trust and follow the word of God, facing hardships for spiritual growth? Do you indeed know God, his work of salvation and sanctification, enough to stand up for him and his word? Do you savor God's grace and mercy to indeed be joyful, praising God, witnessing your sure hope in him? I want you to notice the word indeed in each of the questions. It is there to test and challenge you. If you respond affirmatively to a question, you go to the following one. But if you're not sure of a positive response, go back to the previous question because you probably didn't pass it. What a wonderful message for us to recognize the immensurable grace of God within his history of salvation. Faithful to each of his promises in order to give us this life, eternal life, of joy, praising him forever. Let us pray together. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. Thank you, dear Lord, of the riches, the richness in each passage of Scripture. Would you just give us the hunger to keep always meditating your word so that we could give our fruit in due time? Would you help us, dear Lord, to learn from the sufferings and the afflictions of life 
as you teach us to grow spiritually, to learn to see you above all things and your word. Learn to seek you in prayer. Learn to seek your Holy Spirit driving us above everything else in our lives, including our own selves. We thank you, dear Lord, for the testimony of John the Baptist and how he fits in this splendid story of the Bible. Thank you, dear Lord, for this, this, this wonder of your working. We thank you above all, dear Lord, for salvation in Jesus Christ and those among us who are looking and striving to know you, would you work in their hearts and bring them to you? Starting with those in our families, our friends, those next to us, those hearing us here today. And Oh, dear Lord, we just want to express our love for you. In Christ's name, amen.